All right, I uh, I think we did we did discuss some of this, but I thought I would hit it again a little bit, especially the aspect here. He talks about judgment, and he you know I've already talked about he juxtaposes the idea of seeing and love, which normally you know that's not a one that you would just naturally assume. Oh, you can either choose to see God. Or you can choose to love God, but I really, uh, I really think those are two alternative approaches, not only to God, but He is then bringing out the idea, uh, and I would connect it that it's a train of thought that you find throughout Scripture that seeing and judging and failing to know God on the basis of belief and love, then are an opposed pair. Uh, The insistence on seeing, on seeing God, precludes knowing God through love. This causes one then to fall into the idea of judging. And remember in Scripture when he talks about, or not just Paul or Jesus, but I think consistently, when we talk about judging, the idea here is that the way in which you judge will be the way in which you are judged. That is, if you presume to judge, you will be judged. So that the judging and falling under judgment seem to come together. So uh, we have the equation of love as a way of knowing God that in some way suspends and I'm using the word suspend here uh, in a very particular fashion. Aufgehoben is the uh, German idea, which is a tra- that's Luther's translation of Paul's term in Romans for the suspension of the law. That is that loving, I think, in John does the same thing, that it is a keeping of the command, but in a way it's a suspending then of judgment. That if we love God, we know God, we no longer fall under judgment. And I think we can take this as a present tense kind of thing. That what we'll come to is that uh, the idea of living in fear and living in fear of judgment is not simply a future, you know, sort of thing, but it is a, this fear is itself its own sort of punishment. Uh, that, uh, and this is, I'll describe this in more detail, that uh, this judging, fearful, failed love, seeing kind of Christianity is, you know, a, a, a Christianity that is termed by John of the Antichrist. And I'm using the term Christianity here because that's what John is warning us about that there's this fake Christianity. These are people in the church, you know. It was If they had horns and hooves, it would no, be no problem to recognize. The problem is they're part of the church there. And so John's trying to sort out who these people are and how you can recognize them. And at the same time, the mutual sort of agape love, loving the brethren, which is excluded on the basis of, you know, obviously if you're judging the brethren, you're living on the basis of 
uh, a kind of seeing, uh, this is a failure to love and is John's going to equate with hate. So the pursuit of God on the basis of sight forecloses the idea that God makes himself available through love and contiguous with that is an understanding of God as a punishing, lawful, perverse, can we say use that word? Uh, Paul uses it, so I guess I can use it too. Uh, and you know, face not here. And face not here, so we can do whatever we want. <laughs> um, it is a good, it's a good psychoanalytic term. You know, the, the idea of a perverse father figure is one that we tend to project upon God. I think both John and Paul are thinking in, in those same terms. That all, a lot of us, unfortunately, have a perverse understanding of God that has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. It has nothing to do with agape love. Uh, John is going to equate, he says, God is love. And so if you think of God in fearful, judgmental, going-to-hell sort of, uh, you know, if that's the motive behind your Christianity, that's not Christianity. I'm sorry. Uh, that's another religion. I mean, that's the religions of this world. Having been in Japan for, you know, 20 years, I can tell you how pagan religion works. It's all built on fear. The whole thing is, you know, people do it, out of fearful obligation that if they don't do it, they'll be punished. Their house will be burned down. Their, you know, they'll, We had a, a friend who was in a car accident. And her friends, or her so-called friends, said, well, it's because uh, God, you know, the gods are punishing you because you're not doing your duty as a, a good mother. She was working outside of the home. Wow. Uh, so, uh, it, it, you know, Shusak, or no, is it uh, Uchimura Kanzo talks about when he was a child that every day he would walk in front of the shrine and he, he it was not a pleasant thing. I, even the shrines are built in very beautiful places. By the way, just having gotten back from Hawaii, where do you think the, the, the uh, religious places are? They're in the mountains. It's the high places. You know, in Scripture, it always talks about the high places. Well, that's They literally say that in Hawaii. You know, the high places are the... And so, the you know, the, the lava, the volcanoes, they're all thought... Well, those are not pleasant gods. Those are gods that get real angry and spew fire at you. But Uchimura Kanzo talks about walking in front of this shrine. One day... Uh, he just got up his nerve. He was so obsessed with his fear, and he went into the shrine. Shrine is a very interesting place, and many people think it may, in fact, be based upon the Jewish temple uh, because it has a, a series of rooms, and then there's the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies, there's some sacred object. Usually it's a mirror, you know, the mirror, or sword, uh, I don't know if you know the story of Ama Teresu that, you know, she's the sun goddess. She hid in a cave and they lured her out of the cave with a mirror. And... But so he went in to the Holy of Holies, into the sacred, which is actually fairly easy to do in these little shrines. 
And he found the holy object, and it was a rock, a holy rock. And he took it, and he put a different rock in the holy of holies. <laughs> and he said he stood back to see if everything, you know, would just fall apart. And, of course, nothing changed, you know. And I think that was sort of his first step to becoming a Christian. He realized that he had feared something that really amounted to nothing. Uh, that's sort of my view, not only of pagan religion, but of a Christianity that is based on fear. That ultimately, it's not a true picture of a right understanding of God. It's a false understanding that we project onto God. And I would connect it then with this whole objectified, seeing kind of judging, hatred, uh, you know, a kind of uh, punishment that exists in and of itself. So the characteristics, you know, John has tied these things together. Uh, the characteristic of sight is your, there's an objectifying. You know, if you, do you know a person by seeing them? I mean, we don't want to exclude sight, but does someone who is blind, do they know people as well as, Probably just as well, right? Uh, the way we get to know people is not through an objectifying sight, but through an, a conversation, through words. And so when we reduce things to sight, to their static material form, even ourselves, in other words, this is a, a way in which we can even relate to ourselves, a kind of objectifying relation to ourselves, uh, that language or words uh, themselves will be reduced to a kind of visual metaphor. Now that's all review, right? We kind of did that. But I'm saying along the same lines, judging and being judged stand together with the insistence on sight. And, uh, and what I'm describing here is a present tense kind of fear that John is describing. So there's a mindset which divides and judges and this is precisely the one who is himself divided. You know, think here of Paul's description of, in Romans 7, of a person who's divided against himself. He's describing someone who knows himself in God in and through the law. But this alienating, objectifying way of knowing God and of knowing the self, uh, it does the same thing to yourself as it does to God. That is, this self-punishing presence is one that Paul describes, the law of my mind does not fit with the law of my heart. Now, you could spend a lot of time trying to sort out all these laws. But Paul's point is that there's these two laws and they're opposed to one another, and they then are this alienating presence that's, that's within him that is a kind of self-punishing, fearful uh way of understanding. John Stott describes this, uh, uh, this idea of love being cast out. The love that spells confidence banishes fear. There is no fear in love. That is, there is no room for fear in love. The two are as incompatible as oil and water. We can love and reverence God 
simultaneously, but we cannot approach him in love and hide from him in fear at the same time. And I hope behind all this that what's resonating in your uh, imagery, you know, could Adam and Eve love God from behind the bushes where they were hiding? Can we love God as long as we are subject to fear and shame as they were? We may not be literally hiding in the bushes, but we may have created a facade of pride kind of facade for ourselves that we hide behind. Uh, in which, you know, who are you hiding from? Uh, really, in the end, you're lying not only to God, but you're lying to yourself. You can't be truthful with uh, other people, with yourself, or with God. And so there's this fearful kind of existence that I think is just characteristic of what it's like to be outside of Christ. Now, unfortunately, it's also very often what it's like to be in Christ, but it's because people have not grasped this is precisely what we're saved from i've been thinking about you know uh i'm doing this talk here pretty soon i'm thinking you know there when you talk about the differences between romans 7 and 8 they're actually fairly subtle differences aren't there uh so subtle that many christians mistake romans 7 for an authentic christianity so subtle that many Christians mistake the kind of dualism that John is describing, which would say that Christ has not come in the flesh with an authentic Christianity. So subtle, I think, that there is an evangelical Christianity that predominates in the land, and I'm going to say this harsh thing, but that seems to be more characteristic of what John is calling Antichrist than of what is there as an authentic Christianity. Now, I I say that, and I think that that's something that we all, it's a process that we all need saving from. It's a, a universal predicament or problem. It's not a problem of just some, it's a problem of all of us. But if we can get a sight, get in sight what the problem is, you're you're afraid, and I know you're afraid. God knows you're afraid. John knows you're afraid. And let's deal with that. Let's deal with the fear. You don't need to live that way. For all, this is Romans 8. John, uh, Paul talks about the same thing in Romans 8. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Very similar to the language of John. We've been adopted into the family of God, and this is the resolution to the fear. That is, if you love God, perfect love casts out all fear, is in the language of John. And this isn't just fear of God. I think this is fear of everything, fear of life, uh, that... You can relax. Maybe it's I've spent too long in Hawaii here. I don't know, but uh, um, that I think that we carry heavy burdens in our lives that we really just don't need to carry. We are living under fear. We're living a kind of hellish existence, and that's precisely what we're saved from. Paul says a similar thing in Second Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and, you know, the language of shame. It's one of Paul's thematic, you know, his whole point with the Gospel of Romans is you, I am not ashamed because of the righteousness of God that has been proclaimed. Therefore, do not be ashamed, he says in Timothy, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel and Paul or John is also going to talk about this the sharing and the suffering of Christ uh, according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity uh, that's the power of adoption that's the power of living in the love of God. Fear has to do with punishment. Or the, and Stott, this is Stott again. Stott says the phrase may mean that fear includes or brings with it the very punishment it fears. Fear has in it something of the nature of punishment. To fear is to begin to suffer the punishment already. Right? I mean, think here again of Adam and Eve, but think of your next door neighbor. People suffer. They suffer all kinds of terrible things in their lives, most of which they bring on themselves because of this angst or fear. You know, what do you want to call it? Neurosis, uh, psychosis. Uh, Once assured that we are like him, verse 17, God's beloved children, we cease to be afraid. We cease to be afraid of God, and I think that fear is no longer the controlling factor in our lives. I guess the image that came to me, and maybe this is because I'm simple-minded, uh, is this, you know, the Narnia tales, when, you know, the children first see Aslan, and he's this fearsome, you know, animal, a lion, you know, you would never... And, of course, as the story develops, they have this warm affection and and there's no fear left in them of Aslan. And I think that's the the way that our 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 uh, relationship to Christ should change. Our relationship to God should should change. We're not the ones that need fear God, but God is on our side. God is our protector. God is you know this is the Old Testament picture by the way of judgment. Judgment wasn't bad news for Israel. Judgment was good news because part of the judgment was it was the God protecting uh, his children uh, from those evil nations that surrounded them. The, the word here is krino, and I, I, I wanted to look at it a little bit because the very word means to sunder, to part, to sift. Uh, if we do it, if we... Uh, you know, this is the division, the, the judgment, the self-punishing kind of thing that Paul's describing. Uh, that uh, if we presume that God is primarily judge and we think of Christianity primarily in terms of punishment or escape from punishment, we're still living under the, the law. We're still living under a perverse notion of who God is. Jesus brings the two things together. He says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. 
For in the way you judged, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. You getting that? That is that as you judge the other, there is a, an immediate just truth in this, that our tendency to judge is the very tendency we leverage upon ourselves. I think that's part of what's being talked about. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Therefore you have no excuse. This is Romans 2. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you in which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice who judge practice the same things. So judging and being judged go together. And and the split that is caused, the crino here. Uh, this is the way that Paul begins Romans chapter 8. You know, there is no katakrina. There is no punishment. There is no condemnation. What is the nature of the condemnation? What is the katakrina that he's talking about in Romans 8? Is he talking about, is, is hell ever mentioned in all of those chapters? As far as I can remember, it never comes up. He's already described the catacrina. He's already described the punishment in chapter 7. And it's that individual in chapter 7 who is split against himself and does not do what he wants to do and cannot do what, you know, he, he, he's incapacitated. He's lost his agency. The picture is that we can, you know, love is a communicative, we've talked about agape love as communion, communication, an inter-Trinitarian communion and communication. That same communicative capacity, the thing that can bind us to one another, bind us to God, can also be turned, our communicative capacity can be turned in an antagonistic self-relation. I believe that's what Paul's talking about. That's the very purpose of the law, was not to divide and be judging. The law was set upon the commun uh, or the uh, you know the idea of a covenant relationship, of a love relationship. I think what Paul is describing helps us to understand what John faces that. This self-antagonism, Paul ties to the soma, the body, that there is this antagonism, you know, what is the, what is the Greek word soma or body, what does it mean? In a sense, it just means your communicative capacities, your embodiedness. This is the, the understanding of language. Can you talk, you know, apart from being embodied? This is a... You know, the whole idea of language is that it's an embodied activity. And a failure of language is then in turning this communicative capacity and so that the, you're alienated from yourself. And the way Paul talks about it is you're no longer your own body, right? That his body, he describes that sin, it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells within me, within my flesh, within my body. 
that his body is animated by this foreign force. Does Paul believe that he's actually separate from his body? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's this split in which I am not my body. I mean, that's, that's wrong, right? You know, I have my body. Are you your body? <laughs> you and your body pretty close lately? <laughs> well, the, the picture is that uh, you can, in fact, be alienated from your own body your own and what that means is you're alienated from yourself because you are your body Uh, and the way that we then find communion in Christ in the body of Christ is a direct resolution to the problem of our own alienation as we find access to Christ simultaneously we come to have access to ourselves uh so that you know this is the whole language of i there is no i uh split off from the body in chapter 8 we've talked about that so paul in chapter 7 paul locates the law of sin in my members in the flesh in the sin that dwells within me uh he uses the term flesh several times And, of course, he's going to talk about Christ dealing with sin in the flesh. How did Christ, you know, uh, is it that Christ, uh, you know, could he have dealt with sin somewhere other than in the body? No, that's the whole point is that he deals with sin in the flesh, in the body, because that's the place. Not that the flesh or the body is evil, but that's precisely the place that sin is. Uh, is you know it's an alienating force so the punishing effects of the law of sin and death can no longer condemn katakrina at the beginning of eight as god has condemned the law of sin through the death of christ this chapter eight one to three uh who ushers in the law of life and paul used the word law here a lot i don't think we need to sort out it's just that there's these two laws there's the punishing law of sin and death, and it's suspended, it's displaced by the law of life and the spirit. And that sums up the righteousness. Righteousness, God's made things right. The body, he says, is dead due to unrighteousness, but the spirit is life, and this is God's righteousness. So we live resurrected lives in Christ. That's my introduction, brief introduction. I had one more slide, but I won't. Uh, oh, well, okay, I'll do it. Sharon's looking at me here like I should do it. Uh, I actually just turned the volume off your computer. Oh, is that, oh okay, okay. <laughs> Paul likens this whole thing to a life of a slave. It's interesting that Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalyst, does the same thing. He says that the life of the slave whose response to the frustration of his labor is a desire for death. This orientation to death. I don't know that people go around desiring death. Maybe sometimes we do. But the masochistic self-relation that we have, this fearful self-relation, fearful relationship to the world, uh, I'm talking pure psychoanalysis here. That's your problem. 
And if you, you know, especially in a Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis, the presumption is, yeah, I know you're sick. Uh, we're all sick. We all got the same disease. It's just that some of us manifest the disease. Some of us are incapacitated. We, you know, what's the cure in a Freudian system, a Lacanian system? Well, it really isn't a cure for the disease of fear and enslavement. But what a good psychoanalyst can do is get you to functioning in society again. And once you're functioning in society, that's considered to be the cure. Mm-hmm. I think we can do better than that. I think we can live without fear. I think we can uh, fully embrace, as Alec was talking about, the joy. Uh, that's available to us in Christ. All right, let's uh, let's read uh, verse sixteen. Jake, you want to read sixteen? Sure. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We've talked about this assurance, and John talks about the assurance. You know, this this is, maybe people have said this about this part of John. This is some of the most profound uh, scripture in all of the Bible. He defines God as love, but then he tells us directly what the experience of the Christian life is. We can rely on the love of God. Now, we can't get confused. We've talked about love. We've defined it. We've cleared up the nonsense that we often have about it. Once you get that clear, though, you can, I think, definitively say, here's the difference that Christ makes. That living in love, being assured, having the assurance of love. Do you want to say something there, Jake? Seems like you should have something to say. Just that love, you know, it's a self-sacrificial ideal. And so, that we do, in a sense, die for God. Baptism and putting off the old self and putting on the new. That love is a, a... That is part of it. Yeah, that it is this. And by self-sacrificial, uh, of course, the idea is, you know, Jesus talks about it. He says, well, anyone who would save his life, that is, anyone who does not have a self-sacrificial life loses his life. Well, that makes sense once you understand, and he who would lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, once we understand that's the very definition of agape love. Agape love is really a concept that's fully developed only in the New Testament. It's really not a concept, uh, an idea that's that developed outside of the New Testament. And so we have this rich understanding of what it, what it means. Uh, if you have lived your days in pursuit of your own self-salvation, in fearful punishment, you've not lived. You've lost your life. You've, you've, in a sense, relinquished living out of fear and punishment. If you give up that, I think that's really part of what's being talked about. If you sacrifice your fear, if you sacrifice this punishing, judging, kind of lifestyle you gain life you lose one kind of life but you gain another you know the picture is you die and you're raised again 
but of course, what you lose is not anything that it doesn't hurt to get crucified in this instance, because what gets crucified is precisely that thing which is hurting you. With us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Uh, I think we, as Christians, we believe in judgment, uh, but judgment is not a thing to fear, it's a thing to look forward to. I was always impressed that Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, maybe I'm overly impressed with anything Wittgenstein does, but he, 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 the, his entry point into Christianity was there has to be a judgment or nothing makes sense. And I always thought that was very interesting for a secular philosopher who, who really in many ways, I, you know, I don't know how far he came in his journey to Christ, but it's always interesting to me that that was his entry point. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, we believe in judgment, that God's making things right, and God will finally make things right. That's what judgment means. He's going to sort all this out. I don't know exactly how that will work. But I also know that it's not something we need to fear, but we can look forward to it. Christian, you want to do 18? Sure. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. I don't know. It's pretty simple, but it's also pretty profound that if if you, the there is a perfect love that casts out all fear, uh, I guess that's what we're striving for. You know, uh, in the Nazarene Church. I don't necessarily agree with the idea of, you know, a perfected holiness. But I think I agree with the idea that uh, we can recognize that we we can truly live in a, a kind of fearless, love-filled uh, kind of life. And so that that may be something that we continually put on. Uh, but we should at least have the ideal before us. Go ahead, you're going to jump on me there for some reason. Okay, all right. Uh, I'm not going to judge you. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm always afraid. I've been fearful (laughs) of the judgments of Sharon. Uh, I know how Jake feels, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, you're taking this a little too far. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, Alan, go. Oh, may you read verse 19? Yes. All right. We love because he first loved us. Good job. <laughs> um, Explain that one. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what does it mean? I believe the idea is that we that there is an incapacity for love. Now that, that we talked about this a little bit. That just sounds wrong at some level. I can't remember who it said. Wait a minute. You're saying that. Well, I, I, you know, we all have affection and we all have, but my understanding is that agape love, this self-sacrificial giving, you know, alternative subjectivity, 
is made possible because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is that we've been given this love. We've been given entrance into this love. I'm not talking about any kind of Calvinistic predestination here, but there is a predestination in that all, all of us were predestined for love. This is what we were made for. Uh, you can do a lot of things, you know, you can occupy yourself with a lot of activities, but if this is missing, I don't know what you got. You? If there's no love in your life, there's no meaning in your life. Sorry. <laughs> you know, and, and I, that's just that's just the reality of it. Uh, you know. So, but, and, and that, that this is definitive of knowing God. Now, obviously, and we go on here to say how this thing functions, Michael, in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his fellow Christian, he is a liar. Because the one who does not love his fellow Christian, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And again, I think it's juxtaposing seeing. You know, how do you love God? If you're one of these antichrist, Gnostic, dualistic, evangelical Christians, then you're in continual pursuit of a pietistic, you know, beatific vision. He walks with me and talks. That's my, one of my favorite songs, so I'm making fun of me here. That. Uh, that this uh, kind of solitary Christianity uh, in which it's just me and God. I mean, this was my early understanding of Christianity. I don't know where I got it. I don't know if I was taught this. I just thought, I don't, I, you know, I got my horse, I got my dogs, I got, you know, Brother Sun, Sister Moon. <laughs> what more could I? I, did, I really didn't understand the need for the body of Christ. That's an either you can term that either an immature Christianity, or perhaps not Christianity at all. I'm not sure. But if that's where we're at, we need to grow out of that, because the true, the real thing here is that if you're going to love God, you can't do it apart from people that you can see. Now the way, the way one commentator phrased this, I didn't like. He said, "Well, God's distant, and we can't see him, but our brother is close." Well, no, it's not that God is distant. God is cl- as close as our brother and sister in Christ. Because that's the experience of God that, that is available to us. All right. Uh, and anybody, well, any comment on verse 20 there? That one's. All right. Uh, Chris, you want to do 21? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so Jesus brings together two commands from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and says, sums up the whole law, love of God, love of neighbor. And this is the Christian law. Love, it sums it all up. It's not that law is annihilated or abolished, but the punishing effects of the law no longer bind, they no longer pertain to us. The law is suspended. 
uh, because we have the perfect law of love that we, it is a law, it is one that we still keep, but it's one it's that Jesus terms a burden that is easy to carry. All right, comments, questions? I get a question. Uh, what's the difference between um, judging and what John is doing by acknowledging or pointing out Antichrist? You know, because if we're going to say something's wrong or somebody's wrong and we're able to put a finger on what, you know, evil is or something, how do you do that? What's, you know, why is that not judging? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I think, and and my answer will be inadequate, I'll already tell you. I think that we sometimes get the idea if you smoke a lot of marijuana, it's something like the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, everything's cool. I don't judge anybody. Um, and I don't think that stupid is the same thing as not judging. <laughs> right? That'll do. <laughs> uh, and and uh, that, no, in some way, we do. John is throughout this talking about discernment of right doctrine. Discernment of what constitutes, you know, he he breaks it down into three areas. Uh, uh, Believing, you know, right doctrine, right relations, social relations, uh, and uh, the idea of of an ethic, the ethic of love. So, in all of that, there's a lot of discerning, and uh, and I'm trying to use a different word than judging, but in the English, that's what it is. It's a kind of discernment. Uh, and so I think, as you know, as Jesus says, we're isn't it? Jesus says we're to be as crafty as you know serpents, but as gentle as doves. Uh, so to be crafty, you have to be discerning. You have to be discerning of other people. Uh, and discerning of situations. And I think John is saying, these people that are hanging out with you, that are saying you want to pursue God on the basis of sight and a secret knowledge, uh, don't have anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. So, I think that I think your question is a wonderful question. That at some level, we do need to fellowship with the right people. John is very much concentrated on the brothers and sisters. He's not really talking about, you know, Jesus will talk about love of enemy. Mm-hmm. That's certainly not excluded here, but John is talking about establishing ourselves in this, this community of faith. And I think a part of having a community of faith, a community of like-minded people, we need to be discerning about uh, what takes place. So you said this before, which I just thought of. Um, the difference is maybe if we were judging, then we would not accept other people or someone who's, you know, who we think we don't accept their doctrine or something. But like you said before, you'll fellowship with anybody. 
you know, if they'll fellowship with you. And you said usually the heretics are people who break off, you know, and go to yeah. So, So John's reiterating the truth of the gospel and what agape love is and what we're supposed to be about. And that's what we shouldn't get off track with. And then people... I mean, I don't know. We're always going to encounter probably different doctrines, but if this is our focus, what he's got laid out for us, then we don't, you know. So it's not that we're like excluding people or in harsh in that way. You know? Right, right. You're not good enough, or you don't meet these requirements. But it's like this is the truth, you know, and. People might feel judged by that, but we're not saying that you can't be a part of it. We want to. We want everyone to be a part of it. Yeah, and there's no one more harsh than John, right? He calls these people antichrists. Yeah. But I think what he's doing is making this harsh discernment because it's on that basis that we can enter into a true doctrine that gives us access to agape love. And I know there may be, you know, maybe there are situations we don't wouldn't know how to nuance this or how to handle it. But I think that, yeah, we don't we don't want to be, uh, uh, you know, so much of evangelicalism or people in this uh, is they just I want to read my Bible and love Jesus and be an ignoramus uh, to know nothing about anything. Well, how, how can you discern anything? How can you even discern the truth when it's staring you in the face? Or how can you name the devil when he's sitting there? You know, how how can you discern things if you if you don't imagine that there's a real world discernment, transformation of the mind? So, your question's a, a wonderful question. That as Christians, I think that we really need a deep engagement with right understanding that enables us to discern and if you that's you know the biblical idea here is we would reserve another word you know we would have judging and discernment would be the way but in english maybe the word judging covers both of those but I would want to kind of distinguish that the judging that John is talking about is this, well, first of all, it's the last judgment, but it's also this, I think, wrong understanding a Christianity that's, that's focused upon judgment is, is mis, misconstrued. And how much of Christianity does that cover? Or I mean, out, you know, how many churches? There's some churches that that's all you hear is about punishing judgment. As far as I can tell, no, that's actually not even a topic that we need to even discuss very much. But what you ask, we do need.